Welcome along to 98 Not Out. This week, a special edition. It's another one of our compilations where we're looking back at some of the guests that we've had over the last three years. And we're starting off with one of the biggest names, a true legend of English cricket, none other than Mr. Graham Gooch. And we started off by talking about his protege, Mr. Alistair Cook, or Sir Alistair Cook, as I call him, and how he's managed to keep going even after hanging up his England boots. Yes, um, he's always been very fit from when he uh, first came on the staff, ooh, well, way back in about 2003. Uh, he was always up front there, and um, he's kept his fitness, he's, he's kept his shapes, not putting on any weight, and uh, fortunately for Essex, he's still playing brilliantly. He is. He, he hasn't seemed to have tailed off at all, has he, even since he sort of stepped back from the England role? He's still... No, he, well, he's a consummate professional, you know. He's, he, he's built his reputation on the way he works at his game his determination, his strength of mind, all those things come together with Alistair. He's uh, supremely talented as well. He's improved his technique down the years. He's improved his range of strokes. And um, he still goes out there. And, you know, whatever you say about Alistair, he he provides scores that wins matches for the teams he plays for. He did it as as a rock for England for well over a decade, as we know. Um, and uh, now he's continuing to do it for Essex uh, in the county championship to helped us to two titles in, in three years. And um, he's, you know, he's the perfect player to provide a platform for your team. Of course, in Graham's playing days, he faced that legendary West Indian pace attack of holding Garner, Marshall and the others. So we asked him, what was it like facing up against those guys? <laughs> You you faced pretty much all of those uh, hostile fast bowlers. Who was the in your mind? Who was the quickest or the most dangerous that you faced down those years? Um, well, I mean, through the late seventies, um, which uh, Andy Roberts was really the first of the sort of uh, batch of fast bowlers that dominated world cricket over the next. Um, I, I would say 15 years or so, uh, maybe a bit longer, um, you know, cum- culminating probably with the Ambrose and Walsh era mm-hmm. really sort of ended the dominance, I would say, of West Indies fast bowlers over the Test Arena. Uh, Andy Roberts was first and, and then he was joined by Michael Holding and Colin Croft, Joel Garner, obviously, and, and then in, in between, you know, people like Ian Bishop, obviously... Malcolm Marshall, who um, look, they're all they all can bowl fast on their day, and, and they all consistently quick. And and, and what you remember, Darren, is not what I remember. He's not particularly a uh, a bowler who was the quickest, you know, over a period of time. You you you, you remember really remember a particular match and whatever. And I would say Patrick Patterson was the quickest bowler in my face, Jamaica, nineteen eighty six. Uh, his test debut. Now, in no way, uh, no disrespect to Patrick, he wasn't the best fast bowler, West Indian fast bowler I played against, and, and that, that accolade would, would easily go to Malcolm Marshall. He was my number one. Yeah. Um, you know, he had all the attributes, but we'll come to it. But on that day at Sabina Park in 1986, um, uh, Patrick Patterson making his debut, I mean, that's probably the one and only time in my career where I thought, the bowler, this bowler could hit me and I couldn't really protect myself, you know, because normally you think you'd get your hand in front of your face or your body or whatever and you might fend it off and whatever, but this particular day, um, he was rapid, as they say. 
You were very, very good at handling it. I remember your your good mate Jeffrey Boyker wasn't quite such a fan of the quickies, was he? Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of comment about Jeffrey avoiding uh, uh, Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson in 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 1974-5 in Australia. I couldn't comment on that. Mm-hmm. I made my debut for England, obviously, after that. But all I can say on the tours where uh, I went with Jeffrey against fast bowling against that bowling attack, I. I said, you know, uh, Roberts, Garner, Holding and Croft. Um, he was a very brave player and he was a brilliant player and he's certainly been my favourite opening batsman yeah. to bat with. So um, I, I'm in the school. He's a good friend and also he was a brilliant cricketer as well. So I don't subscribe to the fact that uh, he had tried to avoid fast bowling because when he played against the West Indies, there was no end to get up, I'm afraid. No. Of course, no chat with Graham Gooch could be complete without asking him about his memories of Botham's Ashes, and in particular, Headingley, 1981. The Yorkshire crowd were not short of a few comments when you were <laughs> that was for sure. <laughs> and of course, if we're talking Headingley, you, were, you had a very good view of uh, Mr Botham's Headingley antics in 1981, didn't you? <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, it's a folklore match now. Um, people arguing now or, 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 you know, discussing whether Ben Stokes's knock at Headingley was superior to Ian's back in 81. Difficult to say, really. I would say that there was more pressure on Ben Stokes, with, huh. without a doubt. Because if you look back at this match in 81... When Ian entered entered the crease, um, you know, we, we, we followed on and we, it wasn't going well for us at all. You know, we, we were going down, you know, every Christmas yeah. knows when you're on the, the wrong end of it. And when Ian went in, you know, he he started to throw the bat quite a bit and, um, you know, because it, it was a sort of a lost cause. And he got to 50 and he grew in confidence and the Australi- Australians got... Um, more and more frustrated. They tried to bowl quicker and shorter. And Graham Dilly came in and, and he kept Ian company. I think he got 50, actually. Uh, and then Chris Alt came in after that with him and got 20-odd not out, I think. And, um, you know, you can legislate for someone playing like Ian did, throwing the bat, taking all the risks, you know, to get 50, 60, 70 even, but not 100 and... Um, what was it, 148 or something, was it? Yeah, something, yeah. something like that, anyway. And, um, you know, it was the most amazing innings. Of course, the scoreboard flashed up, you know, the odds for England to win 500 to That's 1. Right. Of course, there's the great story about Dennis Lilly and Rodney Marsh sending their bus driver around to the one Ladbrokes tent on the ground or whatever, <laughs> or to put a tenner on it in a two horse race. They thought it was a good bet. <laughs> never thinking that obviously they were going to win that Australia were going to win and of course on that last day you know God rest his soul Bob yeah. Willis couldn't get on at first Mike Brilly wouldn't put him on he put him on bowling up the hill at the football stand in which was not Bob's end really and it, it all changed really when you know they had, they had a I'm not saying it's a crossword but you know Bob thought give me a go at the you know the at, at the, the other end you know down the hill and he did, and the rest is history. And, of course, what you probably don't know, Darren, is that the Aussies, when they were 50 for one, which they were, chasing about 130, one was it? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, they filled their bath in the old pavilion with, with champagne. You know, <laughs> ice and champagne. 
and, and Ian Botham and Bob Willis were the ones who drunk all that champagne. <laughs> what, what was it like at the? Yeah, do you actually at the time when that starts going on? Do you think to yourself, "Hello, we're onto something," you know? Or was it just as, as surreal as it was for the rest of us? Uh, I think I think at first, when you're protecting such a small score, you think you might have a chance um, if you get early wickets. Okay. If you knock two or three over in the first five or six overs, mm-hmm. okay, you, uh, and a side are 24 or three, you think a bit of panic might fit in and you might have a chance. But when they were 50 for one, and that's when Bob sort of started to come in from down the hill, uh, um, Kirkstall Lane End, I think it's called, um, uh, you know, he got one wicket. Um, okay, nothing, nothing in your mind as the field inside changes too much. And then another one. When they get to three, four down, then you think, hang on, there might be a little bit of chance. Of course, the flip side of this is in the in the opposition dressing room, in their dressing room. I wouldn't say there'd be panic, but then the, then the worry starts to set in. If you see what I mean. Watching the television yeah. pictures of that, and I can remember at the time um, seeing it on the TV. Mr. Willis was in an absolute zone of concentration and sense of purpose. I mean, even at the end, when he sort of took the winning wicket uh, and he sort of wheeled away and sprinted off the pitch, he was still in this sort of his his own zone of well, concentration or whatever. The word you're looking for is in a trance, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He was in a trance. He was like not not with us. Mm. He, he was in a he, in his own little world, all wrapped up, and he, and even every time he took a wicket, I saw some of the replays the other day. Every time he took a wicket, he went back and put another. If you noticed that, another short sleeve sweater on, took it off the umpire, and uh, you could see by his eyes he was looking down, and he, and he was just trying to, I don't know, maintain this trance-like state. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, always, we were all tapping him on the back, you know, and he, he wasn't really engaging. He was like. Uh, you know, he was a man possessed. What an absolute honour it was to talk to the Essex and England legend, Graham Gooch. Across Brentwood and Billericay, this is Phoenix FM. You're listening to 98.9 on Phoenix FM. This is a special show. It's a compilation, the best of the guests, and this is the second edition of our compilation series. Right now, before the music, we were talking to uh, England legend Graham Gooch. And in that conversation, he talked about the great West Indies side of the late 70s and 80s. And he mentioned about their fearsome bowling attack. But the batting attack wasn't bad either. And we managed to catch a quick word with one of those legends, one of the openers of that batting order, Mr. Gordon Greenwich. Yeah, the, you, you spoke about the, the times to gone by. Yes, we had a good um, bunch of teams, a, a fairly reasonable team <laughs> that, that became successful. <laughs> Unbeaten in so, 15 years in Test Series. I think that's the, st- the statistic, is it? Uh, round about there somewhere, yes. Um, apparently, it's been, uh, which still is, the longest reigning um, team success. In, in any sport, so yes, that uh, I will take that accolade any time, <laughs> because because of um, those persons who were involved at the time were pretty attuned to their job and so on, and very committed. Yeah. Um, and um, although people would say, "Well, uh, you're all from different parts of the Caribbean, different islands." Um, 
you know, the different cultural sort of um, behavior and so on, we we seem to have to, to at that time to gel very well together. And in in recent times, that's been part and parcel of many a conversations why this present group don't play like that. Yeah. Oh, I can't tell you the reason. I am not there. And in, in honesty, I don't think I want to be there too because I don't see the type of attitude and behavior um, going on uh, and that would so actually sort of encourage me to want to be there, unfortunately. Yeah. So let, let, let me take you back to a young, a young boy uh, growing up in Barbados and uh, St. Peter, which I know very, very well. That's a lovely part of the island. Um, what is it about Barbados? It's a tiny place, 14 miles wide, 21 miles long. But this rich heritage of outstanding cricketers, uh, is it something in the sugar cane? I think you forgot something there, and a hell of a big smile. <laughs> and yeah. um, just a little clarity there. I was in Barbados until I was about 15. That's when I came to England and joined my mother. So um, one could say that my cricket was really uh, enhanced uh, from up here, um, playing in various clubs and so on. And then when I joined Hampshire, so basically it, it really sort of uh, jumpstart um, when I came up to England. How was it arriving in England for a, for a young Bajan? Quite frightening, actually, yeah. because it was less than the, uh, the latter part of the year. Um, when I came, so and uh, having to experience snow and so on, you <sighs> went and played in the snow, something that was very strange to you. But um, yeah, it was it was discomforting to start with, but you know you got to like it because as as much as you possibly could, because you went out and you train and you had fun in the snow as well too. <laughs> so I, I think you had to get acclimatized and grow up very quickly. So. Whiz forward a couple of years from that. So you're, you're at Hampshire and then you hit the international stage with the West Indies. And for me, what I think was the kind of the birth of that great side was that 75 tour down to Australia, which was a big learning curve, I think, for you guys. Uh, and uh, Clive Lord, I've read since, has said that that was what gave him the the desire to... To, to basically flex muscles and uh, and turn the side around. What what was it like being there and facing Lillian Thompson and these guys? Well, personally, I didn't have a good tour. I mean, I had a very a very bad tour. Yeah, uh, that was my first tour of Australia, and we didn't perform very well. And um, as a young team traveling to Australia for the first time, um, Australia had a very seasoned a uh, group of players who were in the mix for a long time. And it, it was a learning curve for us as well, too. Um, during that tour, you know, a lot of things happened that made us realize that, okay, you may be a good bunch of players, but there's a great deal more you still need to do in order if, if you're going to be successful. And that tour probably woke us up. It was Perhaps good that it happened then because it woke us up for the future. Um, as you said, what, what Clive Lloyd said, I didn't I did hear, did hear that from him, but I know many things he said in that 
this will not happen again. I mean, this should not happen again to this team because it was too good a team for that to happen to. But as I said, Australia were clinical. They were professional. They were seasoned players. And we, we soon found ourselves at the, at the, the end of, of, of the addition out, a thrashing of 5-1. And we all spoke about what happened and we all were very, very um, disappointed in, 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 in that tour of Australia in 1975. And, but I said, we, we learned very quickly from that. We had to, for us to have labored on the defeat which was very bitter, um, would have meant that, you know, perhaps there might have been no coming back from there, but we learned very quickly from that tour. And as I said, we, we watched what was happening. We realized and understood that we were, we were not the, the team to, to compete against Australia at that time because of Australia's strength. And we had to go away and think very carefully of where we wanted to be and as a team and who we wanted to be as individuals. Now, myself, as an opening batsman, I had a, a, a terrible time on that tour and I needed to start rethinking my, my own way of, of playing um, because I couldn't see myself batting in any other position other than being an opener. I wanted to do that. I enjoyed being there. But in the beginning, especially on that tour, it, it, it wasn't a very pleasant. My art tour uh, was 1974-75 um, to India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. That was the first tour that most of us had gone on. And then it was the Australian tour in 75, 76. Tough. So, oh, yeah, but although the India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka tour was a learning curve as well for us, I thought we did pretty well against... Um, in particular at the start of India, where, I mean, they had four of the world's best spinners. And when you go into the test match and you had to face those, you know you, know you were up against it. It was like in the, the reverse where the West Indies were the four fast bowlers and India were four spinners. Yeah. It, it meant that your game needed to take a different direction as well too. But what I, what I have to say is that we learned very quickly from what happened on that tour from India in 74, 75, and on that tour to Australia in 75, 76. So that probably gave us a better understanding of what we were all about, the team we had, the group of players that were there, and what was needed in order to be successful. You arrived in England in 76, and that, that, that was a famous tour, but um, it was the first time that we'd seen your opening partnership with Mr. Desmond Haynes, the great Desi. Um, you two, for years and years and years, just seem to have this understanding and so hard to get out. Ian Botham tells me a story about spending all day, you know, coming out opening first day, you're batting, and him and Bob Willis and the others are trying so hard to get a wicket, and they get a wicket, and they get, eventually they get one. And then looking back at the steps, down come the steps, chewing his gum and walking with his shoulders is Mr. Vivi Richards. Oh, was it wasn't about it, was he? <laughs> well, tell, tell me about your 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 batting partnership with with with, with Desmond Haynes. It was uh, a joy to watch you two in full flow. I think 
perhaps what was what was good about that is because we both played and opened for Barbados. So it didn't take long for uh, understanding a relationship to build there because you got the feel of each other and how the two of you would go into would gel together as, as a team, as a partnership. And then I think we had more discussion as, as players together than, than anything else with Desmond. We had not, not necessarily a lot of off the field other than when the team come together or even when we were in Barbados playing for our respective teams or club teams or participation in games there. During the West Indies camp, we had more conversation, more discussion about cricket. I mean, all of us did, but the partnership of, um, that we had, that was developed through mutual understanding and respect for each other. My favourite innings of yours was uh, at Lords in 84, when at the start of the game, after day one, England seemed to think we got a chance here. They had the upper hand, but uh, you had other ideas. And uh, was it 214? that you scored in that game? Yes. <laughs> and an incredible, incredible innings. And I watched it recently. I watched some highlights of it. They showed it on the BBC here. Lords looking very different with lots of West Indies fans sat around the boundary fence. And every time you're cracking the ball for a four or a six, there are really excited fans fielding the ball, bringing it back and jumping up and down. Yeah, it's, it's, that wasn't a planned thing on that day. We, we knew we had an uphill task. And... We didn't, we didn't have a lot of discussion or lengthy discussion as to how we were going to go after the runs because it was a tall order on the last day. And we, we knew the situation because both and both would, had had a good first innings and it was always the case where you knew that if you come in and take a couple of wickets, it then obviously it's, um, you don't shut up shop, so to speak, but you will try and see whether or not you can get close to the, the, the total. And unfortunately, Desi got run out uh, early and Larry Gones came in and um, everyone, well, that's not everyone, but knowing Larry, Larry is a very stodgy player. Um, there are times where Larry played a cover drive and actually Midwicket had to chase it. Because it be off the inside, in, in, the, in the part of the bat, or the inside edge, the inner part of the bat, and with a wide mid wicket or, or left of uh, mid on. So he was a very, he was a strange type of player, but to complement what he did, you know, you don't, he's one of those players who definitely don't actually give, away, give his wicket up. You have to fight for it. Yeah. And, that perhaps was the partnership or the, the partner that I needed because I prefer to play my game the way I wanted to play it. But then at the other end, you had someone there who would instill that stability yeah. in the partnership. So it, it worked. It worked for us. But as I said, we didn't have a lengthy discussion as to how we would go about the, 200, the 330 runs. It just came about because of how we played and how we attacked the situation. Some say England didn't bowl very well, but did they bowl all that well in the first innings? But we got out. So, you know, not a lot of credit in a way was given to the West Indies team for that. They said the West Indies team won 
and the one in grand style. But I think the manner and how we did it um, needs to be looked at a great deal more and complemented because you, you don't you don't score 330 runs in just over two and a bit session. Those runs came came in 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 rapid fashion. And I said the rest is, is history now. But looking back on it, I mean, it's it happened because I think because we were able and courageous enough to challenge that total in such a short time. West Indies legend Gordon Greenwich. Coming right up to date, one of the stars of the current New Zealand Test team is Daryl Mitchell, and we caught up with him when he was visiting England ahead of the World Test Championship final in 2021. New Zealand uh, have arrived after a long journey to face England in a two-test series uh, beginning on the 2nd of June ahead of the World Test Championship final against India. Now, um, we have been very, very lucky to get hold of New Zealand's Daryl Mitchell. Daryl, welcome to 98 Not Out. Hey, guys. How are you going? We are good. Um, how's the journey been up from uh, from Auckland? Yeah, it's obviously um, it's been a big uh, four or five days now. Um, it was obviously flying through Singapore with what's going on at the moment in the world. It was a bit bizarre flying through an empty airport and then yeah, arriving into Heathrow and straight down here into Southampton for a few days in isolation is, um, yeah, it's obviously a bit different, but yeah, all good. We've talked to quite a lot of people over the last year or so that have been dealing with this. I mean, it's, I guess it's just how life is for everyone at the moment. Um, Southampton's not too bad because you've got a golf course at the back there, haven't you? Yeah, we're, um, we haven't been allowed out yet. We've got to do a few days isolation by ourselves in our hotel rooms, but um, we're quite lucky. We've got balconies overlooking the ground and there's a county uh, first class game going on at the moment between Hampshire and Leicestershire so uh, a few of the boys are sitting out on the balcony watching day one and then yeah uh, it's killing the time which is good. How's the weather down there because up here it's been windy and rainy and uh, not cricket weather. Yeah, it sounds, sounds like it's like they're all over the UK at the moment um, yeah, it's <laughs> probably pretty similar to be fair to what we're getting back home in New Zealand at the moment in terms of um, yeah, the end of our summer heading into winter, it's yeah, starting to get a bit cooler. So it's yeah, pretty similar to home. 2021 has been a, quite a year for you personally so far. Getting a central contract, you've had your first test century, you've had your first ODI century. You're on form. Um, yeah, no, it's been, it's been cool. It's been a good summer, um, both personally and, and as a team. And um, for me, you know, moving, I moved domestic teams over the over the winter and um, yeah, to contribute to a, a different team and, and get some success both with Canterbury and New Zealand has been really cool. And yeah, it's just all about having fun and trying to compete and win games of cricket. And if those personal little milestones happen along the way, then sweet as. BJ announced that he was retiring from the game. Um, Darren and I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that um, it's been quite a settled side, isn't it? The New Zealand side. So it must be good to, to break into it. Yeah. Yeah. We're very lucky at the moment, you know, um, We've got some world-class players, leaders within our group, and um, it's really makes the transition easier from domestic cricket up to international when you've got those guys making the, the group um, a lot easier to come into and just be yourself and do your job for the team. Um, yeah, losing BJ at the end of this series will be, it'll be a sad moment. He's obviously contributed a lot to New Zealand cricket, and he's a massive part of um, yeah how our team goes about things on and off the field, and he's a great leader. So, um, yeah, he's... I'm sure he's looking forward to um, not having to keep 100 overs in the park every day, but um, yeah, definitely sad to see him go once he's done. It's a busy few weeks, and the, the schedule's thick and fast for you guys. Um, you've just arrived, and then the first test is 
2nd of June, then you're up to Edgeworth then for the second test, and then uh, you've got this World Test Championship final um, down. That's but that's at the Aegeus Bowl, isn't it, against India? Um, up for that? Yeah, it's obviously uh, any tour of the UK is pretty special, and um, yeah, to obviously play at Lords and Edgebaston's uh, really cool, and then to add a little internet uh, World Final at the end. Um, yeah, it's it's obviously an exciting for uh, a month coming up, and um, I just know the guys are looking forward to getting out of their rooms, getting stuck into some preparation, and adapting to the conditions and, yeah, trying to win some games of cricket. You've got to fancy your chances against England because it's a, a, a bit of a change side with uh, a few people absent. Yeah, at the same time, I think, you know, England's depth at the moment is world-class. You're still going to have the experienced guys with the likes of Broad and Anderson and, and some really cool young guys coming through. So, um, yeah, I think any time you play test cricket, whether it's it's new guys on the block or, or the world-class guys that have been there for years, I think it's, yeah, it's the ultimate test and, it's not going to be easy. So, yeah, we're looking forward to getting stuck into it. And what about India? Yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously, it's, um, yeah, it's cool to, to play them in different conditions again. And, um, yeah, for us, it's just constantly keep trying to improve over the next uh, yeah, month or so to be ready to go for that final. And, and um, yeah, five days of cricket, anything can happen. And I'm sure us as a, as a group are just really excited to get out there and yeah, take on India and, and see what happens. For those that don't know, um, you come from a, a famous family. Your father, John, was uh, All Blacks coach. Um, how are your rugby skills? Yeah, I love my rugby. Um, obviously, yeah, you get brought up, especially as a Kiwi boy, you get brought up to be an All Black in the winter and a, and a Black Cap in the summer. So, um, yeah, I love my rugby. Uh, obviously, with Dad being with England now as well as an assistant coach, it's, um, yeah, it's quite funny. He's over here, probably only about 45 minutes away, but can't see him because we're stuck in hotel rooms. Yeah. So, um, yeah it's, yeah, it's a bizarre time, but yeah, I, uh, rugby-wise, I do love my rugby, and uh, I wish I was a bit quicker so I could play it. But, yeah. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. I've got family in Browns Bay in Auckland, and uh, I, I went down to visit a few years ago, and I was really struck by just how popular rugby is down there. You know, there's all-black stores in every corner. It's on the TV. It, I would even say it's bigger than football or soccer is in, in, in England, I think. Yeah, it's it's definitely a religion in our country. It's probably yeah, like like football in England and cricket in India. You know, it's it's um it's the yeah definitely the national game that when the All Blacks lose, the whole country's sad for a week. So um yeah, it's it's obviously part and parcel of sport, and it's cool to see the country have passion behind the All Blacks and um yeah, starting to become the Black Caps now as well, which is really cool to see. Well, the Black Caps are on a on an amazing run. I'm not going to talk too much about the World Cup last time around, but uh, uh you know. That came in the middle of a really impressive string of results across all formats as well. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, Kiwi players that really do seem to be adapting and uh, really performing right across the board. Uh, you're rightly there at the World T Test Championship. Is there any secret to this success? Um, yeah, if I, if I knew, I yeah, probably wouldn't be a player. I'd be more of a coach. But um, yeah, I think you know we're only a little country of 5 million people. So we've got to make sure that we... Um, we understand our own values and what makes us successful as a country and um, make sure that we stick to the New Zealand way. And um, yeah, we, we obviously realize that we're, we don't have the, the hundreds of thousands of players to pick from. Um, so we've got to make sure that we utilize our facilities and everything as well as we can. And um, yeah, it's just all about competing and, and yeah, just enjoying the game. And um, yeah, I think we, we are very lucky at the moment. We've got some world-class players in our group, as I said earlier, that can, that lead us and, and allow guys like myself and the younger guys to, 
to learn off them and, and yeah, hopefully help that transition. But yeah, um, yeah, we are only a little country and we just definitely punch above our weight, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you got the test at Lords. I think there will be some supporters there, but it won't be the usual full house um, that uh, I know a lot of players, it's kind of like a big moment in their cricketing careers to be walking out in front of uh, a packed Lords, but uh, still going to be a big occasion. Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah. Anytime you play at Lords and you get to walk through the, the long room there, and um, yeah, it's obviously a pretty special place that every cricketer wants to play at. So, um, yeah. From a personal point of view, it's really cool to to be a part of this and, and to get the chance to go there and, and yeah, hopefully uh, win win a few tests and um, yeah, have some fun. So yeah, it's obviously pretty cool. And how are you coping with the uh, the isolation? We've talked to a few people over the last year or so, and uh, like England, for example, we, we spoke to Chris Wokes when he was in Sri Lanka, and uh, there was talk of a um, a call of duty league going on between the England boys and uh, funnily enough Ben Stokes and Jofra Archer were bossing that as well um, have you guys got anything going on to keep the boredom away yeah uh, most of the boys have got playstations or something along yeah pretty similar we've got yeah, little little crews that play in the afternoon um, our trainer Chris Donaldson gets us doing a circuit every morning so we get yeah got to do that make sure he's happy so we can have a few treats at night for dessert um, but yeah for me it's I, I quite enjoyed isolation i've got two two young girls at home that it's full on when, when we're at home so to actually be able to play some playstation and lie in bed and watch netflix is actually it's quite a nice change so um yeah i'm definitely making the most of, of getting some sleep that's for sure <laughs> i can i can fully understand that i've got two kids Any as well treats yeah. lined up for your birthday tomorrow yeah i'm trying to keep it quiet because i'm turning 30 so i'm trying to yeah not tell anyone and hopefully it just sneaks by <laughs> and no one works it out so yeah we'll <laughs> see what happens and away from cricket, I know you said you've got a young family that's going to keep you busy, but um, what do you do with your downtime to to uh, escape? Yeah, for me, uh, that's yeah, for two two young girls. I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old and, a half year old and uh, six months. Um, so, yeah, for me, uh, any time I – yeah, we're not travelling around the country or world playing cricket. It's just making sure I spend a lot of time with them. And, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much me at the moment. I well, I wish I could sneak out and play golf like some of the boys do, but yeah, trying to get that past the boss is uh, tough work at times. So, um, yeah, it's not cricket. It's, yeah, just dad life, uh, making sure I make the most of being at home with them. That's New Zealand batter Daryl Mitchell. Now, in that chat, we mentioned Chris Wokes, and uh, here is the man himself, and we caught up with him when he was in Sri Lanka with England. A big tour of, of India ahead. Is it five tests, four T20s, and three ODIs? Um Obviously, tails up after Sri Lanka, but India are going to be um, a big prospect after their success in Australia. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, whenever you turn up in India to play India at cricket, you expect a, a real tough challenge. Um, you know, we know how good they are. Um, you know, I suppose, you know, them going to Australia and turning Australia over in their conditions is, you know, an incredible feat. But, um, you know, whenever you come to the subcontinent, um, it's, a, it's a tricky place to tour at the best of times, let alone when they're on the form that they are. So um, we know it's a big, you know, a big task ahead of us, but everyone's excited. I think, um, you know, what we showed in Sri Lanka as a squad, um, you know, the depth that we've got and the way that we played in those conditions, I think, um, you know, shows that we've got the game to, to perform in India. Um, you know, no offence to Sri Lanka. We know India are going to be a bit of a tougher test, but at the same time, we feel that we've got the, the squad and 
capabilities to go out there and, and cause an upset, hopefully, because I don't think, you know, too many really expect England to come to India and, and perform too well. So, you know, we're excited about the challenge ahead, yeah. It opens the door to a lot of, uh, new, with this sort of squad rotation, obviously, in this COVID environment, um, it does open the door to uh, a lot of newer players. We've seen Dan Lawrence make quite a confident debut in Sri Lanka, but, um, you know, waiting in the wings is people like Ben Folks, uh, uh, and, and as you mentioned, you, you could make mowing um, that could be featuring uh, in India. So, you know, for once, England are looking good. There's a real strength in depth right across all formats, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Um, I think, like you touched on there, you know, the guys that, I mean, it's amazing isn't it, how I, I perceive people making their debuts now, how confident the players seem to be. You know, they come in and they just perform almost from, from day one. Um, you know, they certainly seem to have that sort of, I suppose, like hardened cricket experience behind them. As young players, they come in, it's almost like they've been playing the game for 10 years already. Um, you know, Dan showed that in his first performance as well. Um, you know, there's no fear, which is great. Um, you know, I look back to when I made my debut, I was, I was shitting bricks, to be honest. Excuse <laughs> my language, but, you know, these guys seem to come in and, and have no nerves. I'm sure they do, but they don't tend to show it too well. And, um, you know, they perform really well, which is great. Um, so, yeah, we've got great depth. Um, and like you touched on, I think in these current times, in COVID times, you know, you're going to need good squads to, you know, to make sure that you perform well, you know, particularly when you come on tour. We've got good, you know, strong 24, I think there's 24 players here, including some reserves. So, you know, and, and to be brutally honest, you know, if there was injuries, any one of those players could step up and perform well. So, um, yeah, we're in a really good place as a team across the board. You're a bit of a veteran of the England squad now. Is it 10 years that uh, you since your debut you just mentioned there? Yeah, that's it, Dan. Thanks for reminding me. I, uh, <laughs> certainly, you know, when you see these guys come in, I, Sam, Sam Curran, one of them, you know, he's been around the squad for a good few years now. Um, I think he's only just turned 22. And, you know, it, it's amazing, really, to think, you know, these guys that are so young come in and, and perform so well from, from, the, from the get-go. Um, you know, I certainly do feel old sometimes, but there's still a few few that have passed me. You know, I, I look up to the likes of Brody and Jimmy, and you know, they've obviously got a few years on me, and they're, um, you know, to be honest, they're still in their peak. They're still absolutely flying. There's no sign of them t tapering off at all. So, um, you know, it, that that for me is is a great thing to kind of remember. And you know, I look up to those guys and think that I hopefully I've still got many years ahead of me, but. You know, I don't know where 10 years have gone. It feels like it's gone really quick and uh, in the blink of an eye, but certainly enjoyed it, that is for sure. It's an interesting period in the England team as well because it, you, you'd have seen some astonishing highs, but some pretty low moments with the England squad as well. I'm, I'm thinking about the 2015 World Cup, for example. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I think throughout your you know, international career at the high level, you, you're always going to have some... Some good times and some bad times. Um, you know, as you touched on there, 2015 World Cup was a pretty tough one to take. Um, you know, we, you know, since then, obviously, we've we've come on leaps and bounds in that in that format. Obviously, proving that with the you know the year we had 2019 World Cup, but you know that was a tough time. Um, and it's great to have been on that journey with the team. You know, you know there's a lot of cliches about there that the you know, the bad times kind of make you who you are as a person and as teams and stuff. And that's certainly the case with that, that one day team. It was a big change and turning point in, in England cricket's history and ODI cricket, I suppose, you know, there was change needed to happen and 
you know, thankfully I was a part of that change and and have moved through those tough times into the into the good. So um, yeah, really pleasing. You know, you do take on those those challenges and thankfully come through the side of them. So of those ten years, what uh, is I would I would guess I know the answer to this, but um, what has been your 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 highlight? Let's not dwell on the negatives. What has been your absolute yeah. highlight? Yeah, I mean, I mean the obvious one is obviously 2019, the World Cup win. Um, but you know, it's hard to see past you know a few other games for me. Um, I mean, it's probably hard to say this because the 2019 World Cup final was obviously the the one that everyone remembers. But the semi final for me is probably the one of my favourite games of my career. Um, you know, thumping the Aussies um, at Edgebaston in a semi-final of a World Cup for me, home ground, um, as a local lad, was kind of something which will stay with me forever, really. Um, I had a good day myself as well, which always topped it off. It was the first kind of real game where I played at Edgebaston for England where I really felt um, kind of the team, sorry, the, the crowd really behind me as a, as a personal individual player. So, that was a real nice feeling, um, but I can't see past my, my debuts either. They're they're moments that you really you really work hard for as a player, and you, they're they're the moments that you kind of you know think will never happen. You know, when you're a young lad you know, learning your trade as a cricketer, um, you never feel like you you ever going to quite make it to, to that international level. So to actually receive the cap, receive the jumpers, um, and walk out as an England player for the first time, those those memories are the ones which are hard to top as well. Who gave you your cap? Obviously, there's a lot of focus now on the, the, that kind of speech and I think James yeah. Foster was, gave it to Dan Lock the other week. Who gave you yours? Yeah, so um, my one day and T20 caps were, were given to me by by the captains at the time. T20 captain was Paul Collingwood um, and the ODI captain at the time was Andrew Strauss. Uh, which is obviously great to receive it off two two legends of, of England cricket. Um, but then my test cap was handed to me by by Beefy, um, which is pretty special, really. Um, you know, obviously an absolute legend of England cricket, a legend of the game, great personality, um, great character. Um, the, I suppose the only downside to that was the fact that he kind of I shared my debut with with Simon Kerrigan, um, and he handed us out both our caps at the same time. So it wasn't like it wasn't like solely focused on on yourself and gave you like a massive speech. So, you know, that, that's probably the only downside to it. But I mean, what a, a great player and a great um, person to have received a, a cap off. Yeah, definitely. We've had a few Aussies on the show. We've had uh, Michael Bevan was on last week. We've had um, Mark War. We had uh, Shane Watson that Webby just mentioned. Um, yeah. And we've had their perspective on the Ashes. Now, as an England man yourself and having taken part in a few... Ashes tussles. Just tell us what the Ashes means to to England and and, and the players. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, for an England cricketer, it's the ultimate challenge, I think, and the the pinnacle of of the game um, to go head to head with the Aussies in the red ball format. You know, don't we're on. We have some great white ball games with them as well, but I think in the Test arena, um, which for me is still you know, the pinnacle, regardless, you know, against Australia or not. You know, test cricket is is such a great game, a great sport and a great contest. And I think that's what Nash's series produces. You know, it's it's five days of a test match across five test matches across, what, two months of, of, of the year. Um, it, it's a long stretch. And, you know, 
across five test matches and, and five days in each, you get whoever wins, you know, is deserved winners. And amongst that, obviously, there's little battles here and there, you know, certain bowlers against certain batters. Um, you know, the fans clearly get behind each other's teams. Um, I think just as an England cricketer, is the pinnacle and to play in it, you do feel that sort of intense rivalry, not only for yourself, but also for the people watching. Um, and it really does kind of galvanate, I suppose, the nation a little bit, especially cricket lovers. Um, so I think as a cricketer, to be a part of that, it's great to be in the mix, great to be in the battle. And yeah, as I said, it's the true test. So to, to come up against them and, and hopefully whenever you play them, you beat them, you know, which is hard because they always produce a good team, as do we. But, um, you know, it's the true test of a cricketer, I think. And, you know, it shows how, how good you can be or, you know, whether you get found out a little bit. Now, I know um, even in non-COVID times, um, so a lot of, with all the touring and the schedules, there's a lot of time spent in hotels. And I've found out that in years gone by, um, a FIFA league has been a big part of, uh, of the England camp. Is, is there one going yeah. on at the moment? So FIFA's kind of been taken over by Call of Duty. Um, <laughs> the, the, the boys are mad for it. Honestly, I'm not... Oh, it's, it's incredible. How, much, how many hours do the boys put into, um, into Call of Duty now is, is incredible. It really is. I mean, it's quite special watching some of the guys play. I mean, there's, some of them are, are very, very good. Um, me not being one of them. But, um, you know, the FIFA, FIFA used to be the go-to. Yeah. yeah, there used to be FIFA leagues and, you know, it got very competitive and that now but um yeah it's been switched for cod for uh for this war zone game where uh yeah the guys get competitive with that as well but um who are the best ones about, there? uh top three i'd probably say stokes joffra <laughs> uh, uh stokes joffra and oh i don't know i've ollie, ollie stone's pretty good as well actually uh, <laughs> but yeah i mean st- i mean Stokes has got to a stage where where he's streaming it online now. Um, oh my god! <laughs> so, um, yeah, the guys are taking it seriously, as you can tell. Phoenix FM. Welcome back to ninety eight. That out, we are reviewing our guests down the years, uh, and this time we are joined by one of the heroes of the two thousand and five Ashes series, widely remembered as being one of the greatest Test series of all time. It's also remembered, sadly, for being the last England home series to be broadcast on free-to-air television, as it made household names of many of the England players that took part. One of the stars was Steve Harmison, England's opening bowler, and we asked him what it was like to take part in that memorable series, and in particular, being at Lord's on day one of the first test. It was, the, the, the long room was a buzz of, it was just different noise that we normally have, and of mine. So that was been my fourth time, fourth test in the long room. And normally when you sort of come down the stairs, you've got to move people out of the way to get to the field. It's like you're just like, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, sir, can I get to the field? I'm actually going to be playing in a second here. <laughs> and that's what you do with the long room. It's such a ridiculously unique place where you have to, you have to ask people to move out of the way of you getting onto the, the field of play and the cricket. And it's you know, the traditions that come with it. But this was totally different. It was roped off. It was heaving from the minute you know you went out for warm-ups. It was rammed, the long room. Um, and the noise, the atmosphere, the buzz. Is, I keep 
we didn't recognize it because it's like we're not used to like posh people cheering yeah normally it's, it's just like a different different cheer wasn't it we weren't used to that normally the, you'd, you'd walk through them on the way to practice and they'll be like quizzically looking at you thinking Who, who's he uh, who's he oh no I've picked him again and they did say that to me actually somebody did actually have a go at me at one time when I came in with my bat saying I can't believe they've picked you again so yeah it was a it's a different place the long room but what an atmosphere that that morning was the buzz the hype of around it it was you know we come off the back of a one-day series that was like no other against Australia and, and Bangladesh and We'd gone 18 months ready for this this moment. This is our moment. You mentioned Michael leading us down. But we built that. We built that from the Caribbean in 2004 all the way through to not losing a test match throughout that whole summer, 7-0, seven, seven test matches. We went to that South Africa, first team to win in Africa after apartheid, and then to come back. You know, be ready for Bangladesh and then obviously the big one. And we were ready for it. And, you know, Michael leading us out. Long rooms go mental. The whole, you know, Lords is going mental. And we're there in the middle ready to go. There was that famous ball to Ricky Ponting, which kind of set the tone for the whole series. Did you have that in the, in the back of your mind to send that one down at him at some point? No, there's a lot made of that start. The six overs from my end, six overs from Matthew's end. And, and then when Freddie and Simon came on for like the next two or three overs, up until just after drinks, probably the first hour of that, of that test match, there was a lot made of the aggression. But when you look at it, really, in the reality, the only thing I did was bowl bounces. Simon Jones bowled at 90-odd mile an hour. And Freddie bowled at 90 mile an hour. We were, we were aggressive bowlers. We were an aggressive team. Uh, it wasn't intentional that we were going to be in the face. And we weren't in the face. There's a lot made of you know, getting out of Australia and being aggressive towards them. We were, we were aggressive with, with you know, the way we bowled, but not in anything, anything other, any, anything sinister. I thought when you look back at it, you look at that first hour, your realisation of Australia, I thought were more nervous than what we were. Um, were, were they thinking this is the first time in 20 years we could potentially lose the Ashes because Langer gets hit on the arm second ball um, I hit Matt Hayden within the first three overs and then Hoggy gets him out and then Ponting gets hit on the head Matthew Hayden never gets hit on the head in Test Match Cricket I think Ricky Ponting's probably only been hit in the face or hit in the head twice in his whole career of 160-odd test matches. And the ball to Langer was just his little tuck off the shot on the way he runs down a fine leg. That was his normally favourite shot. So I think that the yeah, what happened in that first hour was Australia being more nervous than what, what we were. And then, you know, we, we bowled them out for 190 and then we go and bat. And at the end of the day, a lot of people say, oh, you got five for 40, whatever. Great to be on the honours board. And it was great until Glenn McGrath got the ball in his hand. Because by the end of the day, he had five for about 15 and made my five for 40 feel like about 550. So <laughs> it was a mixed emotions at the end of the day. We were back up against, the, up against the wall, but right at the end of the day, we seen somebody come into the party, into English cricket and announce himself. And that was Kevin Peterson and the way he batted and performed at Lord's was a, a, just a little bit of a, you know, a, a little shot across the bow to Australia to say, you know, we've got somebody special here. That's Steve Harmison. Going back a little in time, one of the stars of the England bowling attack in the 1990s was Chris Lewis. 
the Guyanese-born pace bowler whose career and life came to a shattering halt when he'd made some bad decisions in life and ended up doing time in prison. We started off on a positive note and we asked him what it was like making his debut as a Guyanese-born player in the West Indies for England. There were a lot of emotions. Um, obviously, I'm excited because here I am about to make my international debut. And, of course, it's in the Caribbean. The family, <laughs> you know, grand, aunts, uncles, everybody is excited. But on the other hand, you're not quite sure, or I wasn't quite sure at that time, what the reception was going to be, you know. Um, and to be honest, there was a day in Trinidad where I was only doing 12-man duties. So it was warm. So I spent a lot of time walking around the boundaries, taking drinks to the different fielders. And on one of the occasions I went down there, there were some guys um, in a group and they were shouting. And I could hear them. Even with all the noise going on everywhere, I could hear them. And what they said was, was Chris, I see they bring you back to the West Indies as a waiter. As they do. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so I thought, I thought, okay, here we go. It's going to be a long day. And in truth, it was a bit. But at the end of the day, I was on the field, I think fielding for somebody, and the day's plays ended. And I saw them jump over the fence. And I saw them head towards me. So I quickened up a bit, you know, trying to run without looking like you're running. And they told me to wait. So I waited. And they come and they go, he pointed at me and he goes, Chris, I want you to know something. We are very, very proud of you as a West Indian playing for England. Yes, do very well for England. And tomorrow, I'm going to be back right there and I'm going to give you some stuff. Yeah, because it's only cricket. <laughs> and that lighthearted moment right at the beginning of my international career just put everything as regards to that into perspective for me. It meant that I didn't have to worry about that. That I knew that when I went out and I played for England, that of course you were always going to give your best, but also that everybody wanted you to give your best. Not just obviously your team members, but also the people of the Caribbean where you where you actually came from. Um, so that was that was a nice touch, and that actually meant a lot right at the beginning. I've got to ask you, Chris, about the load times as well. So. Um, mm. Big life-changing moment happened when, and we all know the story that uh, you got uh, arrested trying to bring uh, drugs into Gatwick and um, you served time for it um, without really breaking up too many painful memories. But can you just give us your your thoughts on, on that time in your life? I suppose it wasn't, it, wasn't a great, it wasn't a great time. And I would suggest that more emotionally, um, than anything else. Um, I'd finished cricket in my early 30s, um, not under good circumstances at all. And I wandered off doing other things, coaching and various different things. And then at 40, I had an opportunity, or an opportunity was presented to come back and do 2020 cricket at that time, you know, and I tried to, to grasp that opportunity and it didn't work. Literally within the first game, I was injured and that was all over. 
And I guess I had a bit of a crisis in the sense that for the first time, I wasn't going to be able to play cricket. I was looking around at other possibilities. And while whilst kind of doing that, life was going on. Bills still needed to be paid, you know. Um, and I can't say I felt the pressure. That might be saying it's from the outside. I what I would say is that I put myself in, in a situation where I felt very pressured um, right here and now in this moment to do something about my situation now. And that situation is really one where, how can I describe it? That if I needed to go to an interview, um, I wouldn't have the money to get there. You know? um, now, I would say this, that lots of people have been in that situation, in similar situations and didn't resort to the extremes that I resorted to. Um, so I'm talking about how I processed that moment. And I started listening to conversations that I had no business listening to, that I'd never listened to. And in a short space of time, I was on my way um, to do that. Not because I wanted to import drugs as such, but because I wanted what I would perceive as some sort of financial relief in that moment. Um, and I made that decision. And then the consequences, of course, um, that entailed after I came back, was caught, um, was sentenced, and all that in, ensued. But one thing I would say about that, and it's not an attempt in any way, shape or form, to put anything anywhere else other than where it is um, right here, is that there's a moment where I'm caught at the airport and all those sensible thoughts that you thought would have been obvious beforehand comes back and you just go, what have you just done? Yeah. And you can see the implications of what you've just done, not just for you, but all around you. Um, but in the previous six months, you were in such a state you didn't have that thought. You know, that's nobody else's fault but your own. Um, but that's close to that's close to the truth of it. Um, so scared about your situation that you don't see anything else. Um, but that that fear in front of you and trying to fix that fear, and in doing that, you create so much more, you know. Um, that was my experience of it. There was a play. Do you, um, do you think it was, oh, this is really difficult to ask, but do you think it was yeah. a good thing that you got caught? Because, you know, had you not, would you have carried on? That question gets asked quite a bit. And, of course, the truth about that is that I don't know no. because we're talking hypothetically. Um, but I would say this. Um, I didn't want to be... Um, a drug dealer. Um, it was more a question of here and now, just having a bit of money in my thought process, just to create a bit of space um, in my head. The part about it being good, being cool. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that because I sit here now. Not necessarily. I wouldn't say that because I've been punished, but I sit here now, and the experience of that has taught me so much. And I'm still learning from it. 
And I wouldn't give that experience back, which is the interesting thing. I wouldn't want that experience. I wouldn't choose that experience. But now it's done and dusted. I wouldn't give that experience back because it's so informative on so many levels um, for me personally. Phoenix FM. Mark Pugac is known to millions these days as the face of ITV Sport. But before that, his voice was familiar to listeners of BBC Radio 5 Live. But two little-known facts. One, did you know he started off at BBC Essex? And two, did you know he was a big cricket fan? I'm a cricket nut. I'm an absolute cricket nut. My dad, God rest his soul, um, started his own cricket club 66 years ago, Wandering Club, which still goes very strongly to this day. And my summers were spent. He also, when he moved out of London, moved his family just where I was born, moved us out of London to uh, the vi- a village in East Sussex. He said to the local parish, can I have that field on the edge of the village for my cricket club? And they said, yes, you can, but you've got to restart the village team as well as your own wandering team. So that's my way of saying my summers were spent being the undergroundsman to dad. He'd do the mowing. I'd get the 22-yard chain out. We'd run the bar. I'd put the flags out. We had a we had a we had a bar. We had a till like the one David Jason had in Open All Hours that used to spring back and bite you. <laughs> so it's my way of saying I'm as I'm as obsessed about cricket as I'm about football and rugby. You know, I was that gener- my generation, the 70s and 80s generation. The football season stopped and the cricket season started. And you know, my dad would get if I said to him in August, "Oh, Liverpool haven't started the season very well." He used to look at me and say. Do not talk to me about football until the test series is over. Anyway, so 1986, I leave school. I'm 18. I'm having a year off before I go to university. And I said to my pal, Rob, let's go traveling around the world, which is, you know, standard stuff. And I said to him, oh, by the way, England are in in Australia defending the Ashes. We went, well, that's going to be fun. So I went to Australia for nine months, worked in bars, pubs, my, you know, gold mine factories, farms and everything. And wherever could, watched the cricket, followed the cricket. And the fifth test at the SCG, I worked in the dining room, so a silver service, which is, means nothing. Silver service is an absolute meaningless, meaningless, <laughs> uh, meaningless thing to say. I served um, Michael Parkinson and his wife. I served Jeffrey Boycott a cup of tea every day, literally <laughs> every day. Uh, and then the famous Alan Lamb, 18 off the last over, I went as a punter and sat on the hill and drank beer all day in the blazing heat. You can imagine what state I was in by the last over. So this is my way, Darren, of saying, I said to a pal of mine, Jonathan Overend, who worked with me at Five Live, who worked with me at BBC Essex, who's an Essex man through and through, let's make a podcast about this series because no one really talks about it. So we made an eight-part podcast called Inside the Tour, all the stories from 86, 87. Anybody you want to hear from, you will. Botham, Gower, Gatting, Lamb, Border, Lawson, Small, Defratus, Peter Taylor, Peter Who, the guy they picked by mistake, um, Pat oh, Cash, because the Australians yeah. were playing the Davis Cup at the same time as England won the MCG. So we've had a we've had a lot of fun hearing all their stories from 86, 87. Now that series was loaded. You've already mentioned uh, a few names there, but on both sides, loaded with great characters, um, uh, in the in the history of Ashes, uh, locking of horns, um, and also it was sort of like the heyday of that that England team, you know, the, which sort of if you go back to sort of the eighty one Ashes and Gower, Gooch, Gatting, um, and a certain it Botham 
Um, and I think by 86, he was fully into the um, blonde streaks, mullets, yeah. blazers. Um, and I believe that Elton John was um, part of the unofficial touring team at that time as well. Well, Elton John was supposed to be on tour in Australia, but it had an operation on uh, nodules on his voice box, I think, so couldn't sing, but still wanted to go on tour. I mean, both, both, both of them said to us his nickname was EJ the DJ. And then in Melbourne, where they, won the, where they won the test series, they all went back to Elton John's suite in Melbourne. And he, Elton John, DJed all night. Just He partied all night. And he'd sent, obviously this is way before, MP3 players and so forth. He sent his driver off to another part of town and came back with two trunks full of CDs and, and, and basically partied. He'd, and Phil DeFreitas, who's a 20-year-old kid from the MCC ground staff playing for Leicestershire, says, I can't quite work out what's going on. Here I am in a suite in Melbourne with Ian Both and my hero having won the Ashes and Elton John is our DJ. I mean, it's <laughs> off the scale. I, I, I describe it, Darren, as the last of the old-fashioned tours, if you like, you know, where they had a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, listen, you know, I would say listen to our podcast, the stories they tell in the run up to the first test with David Gower and Bundaberg run and Ian Botham and uh, America's Cup yachtsman, because that was going on in Perth. I mean, it wouldn't happen today. They had so much fun. And it was the last hurrah. You're right. It was the last hurrah of that team. If you think about it, that Botham, Gower, Gatting, Lamb team never really did anything again, did they? You know, the Ashes went. They never won the Ashes again. Simple as that. 1980, uh, the next year, it... All went wrong for Mike Gatting. He lost the captaincy. 1988, England had a different captain against the West Indies every day of the week. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was the last hurrah for this team of a generation of us, I dare say you and me, that we grew up with, who dominated our teenage and early 20s years. Um, this, this, was, this was their last big staging post. Now, because he works for ITV, I felt I had to ask Mark about the effect that cricket going behind a paywall, going on satellite TV, had had on the sport as a whole. Was it a good thing or was it a bad thing? What did he think? The first thing to say is, because when I say this, well, you would say that because you work for free to air. The first thing I'm going to say is, what Sky have done with cricket in terms of its coverage and its breadth and the time they give it and uh, the, the, the detail that, you know, NASA is saying and Mike Atherton give it when the third man corner is unparalleled. It's brilliant. I started talking about my dad. If my dad were alive today, I mean, he's been dead 30 years, I would have given him Sky subscription for when he retired to say, Dad, you can watch any cricket match you want ever in the world, and here it is. That is brilliant. There is no question about it. But it is also absolutely unarguable in my case that putting it behind the paywall has had a massive impact on cricket's image in the, in the UK, on participation, in just pure eyeballs availability and i do not believe that it is beyond the wit of an administrator to marry the two that's my pure point i'm not what's because there's no way the bbc or itv or channel four are going to screen the, the ashes down under you know frankly as soon as the bbc lost home cricket to channel four they breathed a sigh of relief because it cocked up their schedule so much when it rained or it started late or it went you know you went on after 6 30 and they had to go to the news but I'm sorry, if you're saying to me that putting it behind the paywall has had no impact on participation or eyeballs or image, then I think you're living in cloud cuckoo land. But I do accept completely that the money that satellite television has given has been an absolute lifeblood 
to the ECB and therefore to counties. My, so therefore, you need some imaginative administration, and we don't have very imaginative administrators in sport in the, in the UK as a whole, to say, how can we ride these two horses? And if you say, well, that's a load of crap, Mark, I'll just simply point you towards this. Football maybe is not the best example because it's the world game. I'm very proud, Darren, I'll tell you this. I presented the England-Denmark semi-final to 28 million people on ITV. That's the biggest figure for a single channel, before people talk about the final, because that was on two channels, for a single event ever in this country. Now, 28 million people do not watch Man United-Liverpool on a Sunday on Sky, do they? No, no, no. Two million people do. My point being, how many people are out there? The Rugby World Cup final, 10 o'clock in the morning in Tokyo, England, South Africa, we had 12 million people. How many people watch a club rugby match? It shows the interest is there. You get home from school. I get home from school as kids in the holidays, sit down. Mum says, what are you doing? I went, I'm here for five days. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about I walk the dog. I do my jobs, but I'm here. So I'm saying imaginative cooperation. You need the money from these. You need the money from satellite TV. You certainly what they do in terms of their editorialism is fantastic. And, and, and their detail and the fact that it's T20 in Bangladesh, you can watch it. But you need the eyeballs for the next generation because there's no point being the most well-off sport 20 years down the line, which nobody watches, which is an anachronism, and which nobody therefore plays. 98 Not Out, sponsored by Shepherd Neen, proud supporters of cricket in Essex. Mark Pugach there revealing his love of the game of cricket. One of our favourite guests who's been on a couple of times is Monty Panasar. And when he came on the first time, we asked him about his memories of that famous innings in the Ashes series of 2009. Cardiff, 2009, where you uh, took the nation, uh, you became the nation's sweetheart, the nation's hero. Um, tell us about what, it, what was it like from your point of view, that hot day when you were batting, you came in at number 11 to try and hold up one end? Yeah, I think for me it was um, like really interesting because... I didn't have any expectation. Um, people, in, even in the dressing room, would just thought, "Oh, it's only it's Monty going to bat." Um, half the team bring, bring put on their whites anyway. Whenever I go go out to bat, and even that, then that becomes your expectation. You kind of think, "Oh, the teammates think you know I'm going I'm to get out anyway, so I probably will get out." Um, and uh, you know, there's no pressure on you to like score any runs unless there's someone else. You know, where you need to get someone on a hundred, then yeah, you know, mm. it, it, you kind of like feel like you you help them get get to a hundred, and and then you kind of you know that makes you sort of gives you a bit of satisfaction. You know, I, I took on a few bouncers and um, tried to see off a, a really good spell, which was difficult for me, so you can get my uh, my mate on a hundred. Um, but so yeah, no expectation, and you know, I remember Jimmy saying to me, you know, just make sure you know if it's if it's straight, just put you know you don't get bold. And if it's a bouncer, just drop your hand and let if it hits you, it hits you. You know, but we don't want to like you to sort of hang your bat halfway and then because you because because you think he's going to hit you and then you fend it off and you get edge and you're out. So mm. yeah, I thought well, you know, if this is a time to take a few blows, then just take them. You know, because if if we somehow draw this test match, it will be a miracle. And and it was, you know, and it was, and we couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it um, that we actually. Uh, <laughs> Um, saved a test match and uh, I remember Jimmy being so delighted and, and happy and for me it was um, I just I just you know at the, at the time when I was batting at the crease I felt so calm and relaxed 
but I didn't realize like the whole nation was so nervous and tense. It's like, oh my God, it's monkey batting, you know. It's like we just don't know what's going to happen when he comes out to bat. And uh, it's, yeah, you can, even the whole nation, you know, they're like gripping by their, by their teeth and thinking, oh, please, you know, just don't get out, don't get out. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, the odd miracle does happen. And I think on that day, yeah, Definitely. it was a big miracle. Since giving up the game of cricket, Monty's turned his attention to social media and he's revealed some fantastic new talents and we were lucky to get a demonstration. Now you are revealing loads and loads of new talents, Monty. There's singing, which you're very good at. Yes, and yes. What I like are the accents. So you do a Cockney, you do an Aussie, you do a Jamaican. Can you give us a few accents before you go? So, so which one would you like? Let's start with Cockney. Do a, give us a Cockney. Cockney Oh, mate, yeah, how's that? All right, uh, we just need to go down London, you know, West Ham, bro. We've got to go to Phoenix <laughs> FM, you know what I mean? And uh, pick, get, get some diamonds and then, you know, make sure you bring the cash as well with you. You got it. Uh, oh, listen, by the way, you know, the car outside, the getaway car. Yeah, it's that Fiat 500, yeah. Make sure you've got Balakalava on, mate. What about an Australian yeah. accent? Oh, you got to put the sh- uh, shrimp on the barbie, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, Shane Warren over there, man. He's a he's a handful over there, but even on a flat one, gets a return. And a Jamaican, pebbles, maybe a few pebbles on that pitch. <laughs> Jamaican. Yeah, boy. What, what, what are you saying, boy, man? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, you're, you're going to be driving me today. No, no. The only thing you'll be driving is your car, boy. <laughs> you'll be not. You'll not, not be driving on this pitch. <laughs> hey, get get a leg slip in here, boy. Get the ball going up to his nipple height. <laughs> Women's cricket is on a massive upward trajectory and one of the pioneers of the modern era is Ebony Rainford Brent. <laughs> Let me tell the listeners who don't know what a woman we have got here. Ebony Rainford Brent, the first black woman to play cricket for England, a member of the team that won the ICC World Cup in 2009, a World T20 Cup winner also in 2009, captain of the Surrey women's team, on retiring, became Surrey's first director of cricket and is also one of the first summarisers to join the BBC TMS Female summarisers. Team. Uh? Female summarisers. Female summarisers, yeah. <laughs> uh, and also um, a full member of MCC. But it goes on. As a youngster, yeah. good at football, athletics and basketball too. So, what made you focus on cricket? Yeah, do you know, it's a really good question. I loved sport. I had three brothers um, and I was the youngest. So, I had sort of home environment of like I think you just had to play because otherwise you kind of get missed out of everything going on um, so I loved, I loved uh, sport I loved football most probably most actually for a long time then athletics are you a Palace fan? am I? no I was a Liverpool fan I mean that's a bit dodgy isn't it because of the 80s eight Liverpool rule yeah. and McManaman and Barnes days um, so the whole household was obsessed with Liverpool um, uh, so yeah, so I'm, I'm a I'm a traitor, really, considering Palace was only down the road. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, do you know it's one specific lady? There's a lady called Jenny Washtrack who's one of the first people to spot me, talent spot me when I was young, and get me from sort of playing street cricket into the system. And she did so many positive things to keep me like engaged with cricket, got me scholarships, got me opportunities. And I think she kind of knew how to sway me from one sport to another. So I owe her a huge amount for. Um, yeah, for, for swinging me to cricket eventually. You had a serious back injury, didn't you, at 19? Um, yeah. Which, which seems to be the cricketer's curse, doesn't it, um, back injuries? And 
Um, how did you deal with that, and how did you make your comeback? Yeah, my, my, I mean, my back was pretty, oh God, I think back on it, it's pretty horrific. I, around the age of 19, um, was bowling a specific ball, and I put Guildford doing like an England training thing, and had a bit of pain, went home, went down to pick up a remote, and never walked properly for another year. Basically, I fell over, it turned out I had two products disc, pars defect. It was, a, it was a nightmare, I was told I might never play sport again. Um, so it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty horrific injury, and it took three years to get back to the game. Um, so yeah, I, t- I take so much from that because even though it was one of the worst experiences of my life, I had to leave university. You know, I wasn't able to walk properly for that year, uh, for about a year, and it took a long time to rebuild. But the other thing I'll say is it most probably has um, given me a much more positive and resilient mindset. I think before that. You know, I don't know, you're just a youngster drifting along in life and then mm. all of a sudden you're throwing something that, you know, you have to be really mentally strong to overcome. So, yeah, it was a tough, tough time. Um, and, you know, I still have to do a lot of work to keep my back going now. Um, but it's uh, it's definitely worth, um, you know, going through the experience and, and looking back on the, the journey. Did you get to finish your uh, degree? Uh, yeah, I did. So I studied chemistry and I, I went to, uh, we studied at UCL and I went on to get a master's. I knew that. It. Possibly, I knew if that. I didn't play cricket, I might have gone on to do my doctorate. Playing cricket for me, not being a doctor. Who's smarter, you or your good friend Isha Guha? Oh God, we both studied at the same year. I know. Chemistry. <laughs> yeah, she did biochemistry, I did chemistry, but she went on to do the next day. She's still working towards a doctorate. So, on paper, she's got the, the next level up. But we, yeah, we've kind of matched each other our whole career in terms of forecasting. We roomed together from like twelve, thirteen years old, and. Um, and uh, studied at the same university, we kind of just won't leave each other. And we retired at the same time, so we uh, haven't left each other alone. <laughs> but you've beaten her to 98 not out. She used yeah, to come yeah, on, exactly. but you're I'll first, you've won. I'll give her a tip for that and say, you're missing out, Ish. <laughs> <laughs> All joking aside, we asked Ebony how she felt about the role that her and her good friend Isha Gua played in the last 15 years in developing and being role models for women's cricket. Yeah, massive. It's so much. I mean... I was uh, our generation, and that's even me and Isha's generation. And, uh, you know, if we're honest, you know, crowds were non existent, funding was non existent. Um, you know, we worked hard, but we weren't as athletic. You know, it's a different level now to have a packed out Lords in 2017. Uh, just came back from uh, Australia where the crowd was like nearly 90,000 people oh, God, watching. Yeah. Uh, the contracts, the girls get paid mostly now. I, I remind them that back in our day. Um, you know, we didn't have so much. So, you know, it's, it's moved so far. I think that's, that's wider society. I think that's women's sport in general. Um, you know, we're just have been part of, you know, some of the generations that have helped sort of pave some of the way. Um, but it's, it's exciting that the future and the potential is, is ridiculous. So it's been brilliant to be part of. And as a member of MCC, you must be thrilled about Claire Connor being uh, appointed the president of, uh, of MCC when Kumar's term ends. Yeah, look, Claire's, well, first of all, Claire's amazing what she's done for um, the game. And I think, you know, MCC are trying to, uh, you know, obviously show the direction that they're going. And I think Claire is the perfect person. She is, you know, she's strong-minded. She knows exactly what she wants to achieve. I can't think of anyone better for that role than her that could sort of give it the direction that it's looking for, a bit of diversity, as well as, you know, maintain the values that MCC has. So, no, really pleased for her uh, message her just to say well done because I think she is a perfect appointment. I think I know who's going to be the second female president of the MCC. 
No, it's 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 fantastic. I mean, it's interesting you talk about um, yes, progress. I still think that work needs to be done though, because we've talked about uh, on this program about the hundred, and there's a big disparity between what the boys are getting paid and what the ladies are getting paid. Mm. Uh, Look, I I completely agree with you. I think um, I I think a few things. So one. I think there's one, that, and this is me coming sort of from uh, understanding some of the commercial stuff behind it. I think there's an approach that, you know, we, we can't expect it to all happen overnight, um, but we definitely want to see that progress. What Australia have done really well, I think they've kind of broken the cycle a bit. They were ahead in terms of their women's big bash, so their domestic competition was on TV. They were paying the players, you know, better earlier. They were playing their domestic players, you know, bearing in mind we're only just starting to get these women central original contracts. Australia have been doing that for a number of years. And I think by doing that, that's what's allowed them to have such a successful domestic setup where, you know, people are watching the games, they're turning up to the games, um, and then that allows more money to go back into the women's game. Mm-hmm. I think we're, we're, we're making some positive strides. Uh, we're, we're mostly behind Australia in terms of their structure and how they set it up. Um, you know, a lot more of their domestic players are getting paid, which means they can focus on cricket. The standard goes up, and then it's a better product for TV. So I think they've done, broken that cycle quicker. Um, so, yeah, look, I feel like we're going in the right direction. The bigger question that people keep uh, going on about, which I'm not sure I really agree with, is um, shortening of pitches. So, you know, a lot of people have been vocal about it. I think women's pitches should be shortened. I don't see the need to shorten the pitch. You know, women historically played on the same. You look at, you know, you're not shortening a women's 100 metres to a women's 80 metres, are you? No. You know, it's the, it's the length that um, has been structured and everybody's comfortable with. I think with the ball, um, the reason why it has been smaller, it, it needed to be smaller just to make sure that, you know, it fitted the hands appropriately. And that's been in place for a long, long time. Um, but when it comes to pitches and pitch length, for me, I say just let it be what it is. You know, I love the way the women's game has progressed. We're seeing more power, but we also see a different style of cricket. You know, you see more twos than just sort of stand up back sometimes than you do in the men's game. And I enjoy that element of it, and a lot of people do as well. So, you know, there's so many debates. A lot of people have quite heated views on it, um, but I'm massively a fan of it as it is. The, the next generation will all come up being able to paddle, reverse sweep, hit it out the park. Um, and also because it's become be more attractive financially, kids might choose cricket over other sports, which I think is important that we we attract talent. Um, you know, I'm being selfish here, but I don't <laughs> want to see all of the talent. You know, I sometimes look at netballers who are probably six foot one, six foot two, and real athletes, and I think yeah, well, I wouldn't mind stealing a few more of those into <laughs> our game. So yeah, I think it, I think it's moving in the right direction. But equally, I also don't want to just try and mimic the men's game because I think there are elements of the women's game it's sometimes technically better to look at. Um, I do enjoy, you know, the the twos and threes that sometimes build a a different sort of game than you... God, I can't remember seeing a three in the men's game for a long time. Um, But yeah, yeah, it's definitely moving in the right direction. um, And I think it's just going to keep getting better and better. Well, having talked to the wonderful Ebony Rainford-Brent, we thought it was only fair that we give right of reply to her good mate, Isha Gua. Now, you have been one of the leading figures in the advancement of women's cricket over the last 10 years or so. It's a big year for, for women's cricket with the 100, uh, the Rachel Hayhoe Flint trophy. Uh, I think 
more than I can remember, it's it's as close to front and centre as anything. Absolutely, and it, it just goes from strength to strength. And I think um, it's a combination of investment in the game, more visibility through the broadcasters, Sky, BBC, and a general kind of desire from the top to, to want to support the women and to help them grow domestic contracts as well that is another big big step for the women's game I think because it's that next level down um, and you want to keep bringing people up so there's not a massive jump or a step up to the the international level Um, so that is that is a hugely positive move I think there needs to be a framework in place to to understand when the regional teams can become fully professional because uh, I think that would put a lot of people's minds at ease, those that aren't necessarily on contract who are playing within a team that have five or six players who are fully contracted. So, um, yeah, lots of lots of positives, I'd say. Um, but as always, there's always more to do. Community Radio for Brentwood and Billericay. This is Phoenix FM. One of the most recognisable voices of cricket to radio listeners in particular is that of Henry Blofeld. And we caught up with him at his Norfolk home where he regaled us with stories from down the years and in particular doing Jaeger bombs with the late, great Shane Warne. Now, I can't believe it's five years since you put down the TMS microphone for the last time. Um, well, I know you can see my eyes, my eyes go up. I mean, I'm both, I'm, my eyes actually aren't that bad at all. I mean, I pass all the tests to enable me to drive. But the trouble is, if you cannot see the detail that goes on out there in the middle, which I couldn't see, and I made one or two bad mistakes, and you can't mess a program up. And honestly, the, the most sensible thing to do was to say, thank you very much, but that's the end of it. It was the saddest day of my life, but there we are. And that amazing moment where you did a, a, a lap of the boundary at Lords to uh, an incredible standing ovation. Uh, what a moment. Well, that was extra- extraordinary. I never knew that was going to happen. Anything about it, I was going down, down in the lift at the media centre with Aggers and Big Marks to go across and help with the presentation of prizes. And suddenly I found myself being channeled round the boundary. And then I realised that I, when I find myself in front of them that the Agus and, and uh, Vic were behind. I realised I'd been set up. But everyone, I mean, all the pub, the masses of people there, they were absolutely wonderful. And when I did half the ground, got to the pavilion, Matt Fleming, who was the president of MCC, said, come on, Blas, he said, run half to and I do the other half. <laughs> and, and there was one lovely young lady that even said she wanted to marry me. And I said, well, that struck me as a good idea, but I said the laws of bigamy in this country were rather defeated. Let me let me wind you back to to, to sort of the beginning of that uh, tremendous journey. And um, when you entered into the commentary box, it was a different era altogether in terms of style and content uh, commentary. And you had the greats when I was a youngster. I mean, these were the voices that I grew up with of, of John Arlott and Brian Johnston. Mm. Um, and, and the like, Trevor Bailey. Um, can you give us your sort of earliest recollections of joining that famous team? Yeah, the first time I joined it was 72. I did my first ever broadcast to BBC from Chelmsford 
in uh, the old Wits weekend. I did the Saturday and the Monday. There was no cricket on Sunday in those days. And I had a letter from Robert Hudson, who was head of OB's uh, outside broadcast, um, asking me to join Test Match Special for two of the one-day matches against Australia at uh, Lord's and Edgbaston. And so it all happened quite quickly. I was terrified. I mean, can you imagine going into a commentary box with, as you mentioned, Arthur Johnston, Jack Fingleton, Alan McGilvery, uh, Fred was there, dear Fred. And I, one of them, uh, in one of those two games, the one at Lords, was the only time I broadcast with uh, Norman Yardley and Freddie Brown, who were Trevor and Fred's predecessors. And it was it was a, ve a very exciting journey. I, how I got through it, I have no idea, but obviously I did. I mean, I was, I was absolutely scared witless, I can promise you. Yes, I've, I've heard uh, Daniel Norcross has told me a similar story of, uh, of being a bag of nerves and uh, panic when he did his, when he joined the team. Um, well, I was you... there, I was there, his first test match, uh, Dan Norcross at Edgbaston in uh, 2016. I was, I was still there. It was the test match, in fact, in which one hectic evening, Shane, War I was in the company of... Uh, Phil Tufnell and Michael Vaughan, and Shane Warne taught me to drink Jägerbombs. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a great moment. I, Shane Warne, you see, took 708 test wickets, and he taught me to drink Jägerbombs, and you had to decide which was the most important event. <laughs> <laughs> but you were, when you first started, you were seen as being kind of the more straight, sensible um, foil to Jonas and, and, and Arla, and... Um, it was it was it was Brian Johnson that gave you the the nickname Blowers, I believe. Well, yes, it was. You see, John was I called him was at uh, up at Oxford in uh, um, before the war, and everyone was E R S. It was the sort of thing then, and it and it stuck. You know, I mean, you couldn't we didn't call Ar Ar John Arlers. We called him Arlo. I don't know quite why, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, there was Wooders, Johnny Woodcock, who wrote for the Times. I mean, we all. ERS. I mean, you you backers, Peter Baxter. You know, it, it, on it went, and it, and it was all. But the commentary, actually, you say, you say it was it was it was much. More, I think, in a way, more lively than it is today. In some ways, in that Jonas's sense of humour was irrepressible, and and obvious and quick fire. Arlott was a very funny man too, although he his jokes were a little bit off the back burner. Uh, his voice didn't um, change a great deal, but he was very funny. And he had, of course, this brilliant choice of words that he had at his disposal. And Arlott was a terrific favourite of mine, and he was extremely good to me um, all the way through it. I worked with him for 10 years. In fact, when I retired, I was the last person to have worked with him. There's no one left now, oh, and which is sad. It just shows you how the years go by, doesn't it? But I mean that irrepressible voice. Oh yes, we'll have I three of the red and four of the white, which was his sort of sort of what he said to most wine waiters, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, he had, yes. Well, you see, you can do dollars too. I mean, dollars are coming in the morning, 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 dollars. Ten men under one umbrella, and none of them got wet. Dollars, why didn't any of them get wet? It wasn't raining. <laughs> you know that. I know. And and you had this every more every day as cricket he he come in with with a new one liner, and it was it was it was great fun. I mean it was tremendous fun. And you see there was CMJ um, who played it back kept bat and pad together a little bit more. 
And um, uh, there were, it was John Mosey. I mean, there was, uh, it was great fun. And a very different variety of voices. Now, you just mentioned there in passing um, Her Majesty the Queen. It's her platinum jubilee year. Um, I'm assuming that uh, you've, uh, you've had encounters with Her Majesty um, over these years? Well, I have. I mean, she very, very kindly, well, presented me with an OBE once. And I went and had lunch with her and Prince Philip and about six others on another absolutely marvellous occasion, and which was terrific fun. I was very lucky and sat next to Prince Philip, who, was, who and we talked. He was absolutely, he was, he was marvellously Paul right? He was very funny. <laughs> and it, it was, but the Queen, you know, the Queen spent much of the time laughing. She was so sweet. And it was tremendous. And goodness me, you, I've got a wonderful sort of, um, uh, the, the, the menu still sort of, I, they are framed with all the names on, and it's my great fun. Younger viewers that may not may look at the name and go, "Hang on, Blofeld um, is he a Bond villain?" But there is there is a connection, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I mean, I'm a frightful villain. I can tell you that. Actually, <laughs> the biggest villain of all was my father, who was a friend of Ian Fleming's. And when he wanted an evil name, he looked no further. And if you go to the movies, he's the one you see with a white pussycat on his knee. And um, <laughs> I don't think any of the Blofelds have ever owned a white pussycat, but there we are. And um, it, it, it's always, I knew him a bit. I remember going and um, dining or no, lunching at his house in Jamaica at Goldeneye, where I met Noel Coward, who was also there. And um, no, I mean, Ian was, Ian was a, uh, yes, he, he was a, a slightly difficult man. I think he could be absolutely charming. He could be he could be incredibly remote, and you know. And but I think that was his character. And of course, he had his, his brother Peter too, who married Celia Johnson, the actress. He was also a wonderful writer, and they were amazingly talented. But um, yeah, Bond is um, <laughs> Blofeld and Bond is is, a, is great. I remember once meeting Miss Moneypenny, Lois Maxwell, in a in a in a in a taxi queue in a wet day at Waterloo Station, and we shared a taxi back to Chelsea. We lived very adjacent to each other, and I remember when we were talking. I remember saying to her, "Yes, you might almost say, Lois, you and I have a common bond. It's the only good fun I've ever made." <laughs> The legendary Henry Blofeld. What a man, and so many stories. Well, that's it. Many thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this second compilation of our best of the guests. Remember to keep up with the regular show every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. on Phoenix FM. Mm-hmm.